right, good morning. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14 this morning, verses 12 through 21. Mark 14, 12 through 21. Uh, We are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. Uh, And this morning, we come to the beginning beginning part of Mark's Gospel that tells us about the day before our Lord was crucified. Uh, We come to a text that tells us about Jesus' preparation of the Passover and his revelation that he would be betrayed by a disciple. Now, last week, we considered Judas's agreement with the chief priests to betray Jesus. We saw how Judas went to them with the intention of betraying our Lord, and how Judas from then on began to try to find an opportune time to betray him. Um, and in light of that, a darkness of sorts has settled in on Mark's gospel. It, it's, it's dark from here to chapter 16. Uh, as far as the narrative is concerned. The betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus Christ is on the horizon. The stage has been set, the wheels are in motion, and there is no turning back. Now, some liberal theologians, and you should understand that phrase to mean unbelievers, people who, who don't love God, some liberal theologians believe that this was all outside of Jesus's control. They believe that his betrayal His mock trial and his death on a cross were simply bad things that happened to him. Uh, They believe that Jesus was the helpless victim of an elite ruling class in Israel and a disciple who loved money, and that's about it. They believe that Jesus was simply a man who claimed too much, opposed people who were too powerful, and got stuck in a bad situation beyond his control that led to his death. A liberal heretic named Albert Schweitzer, he's a very famous liberal theologian, uh, once wrote this. So what I'm getting ready to read to you is heresy, so keep that in mind as, as we go. There is silence all around. John the Baptist appears and cries, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that, Jesus comes, and in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It, that wheel, refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, And the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. Catch that. The wheel that Jesus threw himself on crushed him and the mangled body of Jesus is hanging upon that wheel to this day is what Albert Schweitzer says. Schweitzer and many others like him believed that Jesus overplayed his hand during his earthly ministry and as a result was mangled like a doll in the merciless gears of history. That's what he's saying. People like Schweitzer believe that Jesus was a victim of circumstance. A victim of circumstance and wicked men. And even today, and and I hope I'm not stretching this, even today you sometimes hear evangelical Christians saying things that sound kind of similar to that. Um, here's what I mean. They talk about how Jesus was a victim, right? Like how many things have you read on social media or heard people say uh, about poor Jesus? 
right, who was, who was simply a victim of wicked men, right? Poor Jesus. Look how, listen to how sad that this story is. Poor Jesus. And they turned the betrayal and death of Christ into mere emotionalism, right, where it's just a sad story about, a real, about how a really nice man named Jesus was treated terribly by bad people, even though he was just very nice to them. Now, now hear me, let me be clear. There is some truth in saying that Christ was a victim. Because he, he was, in, in some sense, he was wronged. He was murdered by wicked men. We, we affirm that. But as strange as it may sound, he was a willing victim. A willing victim. More than that, he was a victim who controlled his own death and permitted it to happen. So he was a victim, but not a mere victim. Not like you or I would be if a similar thing happened to us. And it is because Jesus is not some mere victim of circumstance. It is because of that that we glory in the cross of Christ. This morning I want to show you that our Lord was in full control of everything about his betrayal and death. I want you to see that nothing happened that he did not permit. I want you to see that nothing happened that he did not know would happen ahead of time. I want you to see that nothing happened before he said, go. I want you to see that everything that happened to Jesus was actually his will and the divine plan of God to bring about the salvation of sinners. And in doing so, I hope to show you how much Jesus Christ loves you. Really simple. I just, I just want you all to see what I saw as I studied this, and that is how much Jesus loves you. And I also hope to show you that our God is so sovereign that even sin, even sorrow and darkness and terrible things serve his holy purposes to glorify himself and do good for his people because he loves his people. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired and errant and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 21. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there. Prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to, say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you once again thankful for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In it there are treasures untold, glories we could not imagine, and joy unspeakable for those who believe. In your word, there is encouragement 
and there is comfort for the weary soul who will receive it by faith. And so we ask now that you would bless us and by your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to receive your word with faith, gladness, reverence, obedience, and love. Open our hearts so that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus this morning. Teach us, Father, and change us. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. In verses, or rather, verses 12 through 16 of our text this morning uh, tell us about the directions that Jesus gave two of his disciples concerning the preparation of the Passover meal. Um, in Mark's gospel, it is now Thursday, and our Lord will be crucified and die the following day. But Thursday evening, our Lord would celebrate the Passover with his disciples, according to the command of God in the Old Testament. Now, a brief reminder about Passover, um, and you're going to hear this again next week, just like you heard it for the last two weeks. A brief reminder about Passover. It was the most sacred feast in Jewish life. It was the kickoff to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it was in this feast that the Jews celebrated God delivering them from slavery to Egypt. They're celebrating the Exodus. And you'll remember that the night before the Exodus, God sent a destroying angel called the Destroyer through Egypt to kill the firstborn of every household. And the only way to avoid the wrath of God was to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of the house. And then God's wrath would pass over the house and those inside would be spared. They'd be saved from death. The blood of a lamb was required or death would come to the house. So after that night, God instituted a feast of remembrance to commemorate his work of redemption. Keep that in mind for next week as we see the institution of the Lord's Supper. God instituted a feast of remembrance to commemorate his work of redemption. That's the Passover. And Jews had to take a lamb or a goat to the temple and have it sacrificed. And some of the blood was sprinkled on the altar and then meat right, was given to the individual to take home and roast and eat as part of the Passover meal. And the Passover had to be eaten within the city walls of Jerusalem, right, and everyone participated in this. Men, women, children, the whole house, every house in Israel was supposed to participate this in this in Jerusalem. And we know, in light of the new covenant, that this feast was a foreshadowing of Christ and his work. It is one of the most easy instances of what we call typology in the entire Bible. That's where one thing in the Old Testament foreshadows something greater that Jesus would do in the New Testament. Consider just this basic principle. The blood of a lamb was required or God's wrath would come and consume. Just that principle alone points forward to the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. The blood of the lamb would be given for the life of the people. And it would be on this day, Passover, that our Lord would die for the sins of his people to save them. Now some of you are saying, how was it on Passover if this meal was on Thursday night? Well, remember that the Jews counted days from sundown to sundown. Passover began on Thursday night and was over Friday night. So our Lord did indeed die on Passover. And this was no accident. It was fitting and it was part of the plan of God. Something I learned this week that I thought was interesting and I, I thought would be uh, cool to share with you. Th there were some Jewish traditions that said that since uh, Exodus calls Passover a night of watching, that it would be at Passover that God would redeem them in the future on that day with the Messiah. It was a night of watching. What? Watching for God's deliverance. 
And God has us continue this feast of watching. Why? Because a Messiah will come. And they couldn't have been more right. God's Old Testament people watched for his Redeemer. And on Passover, God gave him the Lamb of God to die for his people. Passover is about to be celebrated. But in verses 12 through 16, we read of how Jesus directed two of his disciples to go into the city and make preparations for the Passover. Now, why would Mark include this in his narrative? He's more detailed here than any of the other Gospels. Um, to some people, and, and it's, it's okay to admit this, you're wrong, but it's okay to admit this, uh, it seems like filler. You ever read the Bible and you're like, well, that seems like filler information, right? Like, I don't know why that's in there. Know this, you're wrong. Like, it's okay to admit that, but um, write this down. God doesn't waste ink, Right? Uh, someone like me, if I was writing a book, I would probably put unnecessary information in there. Sometimes I do that with my sermons, right? But God doesn't do that. Uh, God is all wise. Everything recorded in scripture serves a purpose and it is for our instruction. So why then is this in there? Why is all this detail in verses 12 through 16 in here? Well, I, I think that Mark intends us to see something that we might miss if we don't think about what happened, right? You're supposed to think whenever you read the Bible. And I think Mark wants us to see this. Jesus Christ orchestrated the preparation for the Passover. Simple, but there's that, and that's worthy of meditation. Why? Because in Christ orchestrating uh, the preparations for the Passover, he was in control of where it would take place. And he was displaying divine sovereignty in ordering everything just as he desired it to be. Allow me now to summarize verses 12 through 16. In verse 12, the disciples go to Jesus and ask, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They needed a place to celebrate the meal, plain and simple. And it needed to be within the walls of Jerusalem. And they've been staying outside. You can read, again, chapter 11 of Mark's gospel. Uh, they've been staying outside of the city in a town called Bethany. And the disciples just flatly don't know what the plan is for them to properly celebrate Passover. They don't yet have anywhere to go. They don't know what Jesus wants them to do. But everyone would know this. It needs to be private. The Passover needs to take place in a private place, wherever they go. Why? So Jesus isn't arrested. So that the meal isn't interrupted. I'm pulling from the Gospel of John here. In John 11:57, we read how the chief priests and the Pharisees put out an announcement that they were looking for information on where to find Jesus so they could arrest him. Remember, that's why Judas knew to go to them to betray Jesus, because they, they had made it known in Jerusalem, we want to arrest him. So wherever Jesus and the 12 go to celebrate the meal, it needs to be a private place or Jesus is going to get arrested in the middle of Passover. Nothing is sacred to the people that hate Jesus. Remember that. Nothing is sacred. They would have interrupted Passover for sure. So what does Jesus do? Verse 13 says that he sent two of his disciples into Jerusalem and gave them orders and told them what they would find when they got there. Uh, a parallel text in Luke 22 tells us that these two were Peter and John. And in verses 14 and 15, Jesus tells them that when you get to the city, there's going to be a man carrying a jar of water who will meet them. And when this man approaches them, they're to follow him. And whatever house that man goes to, they are to enter and speak to the master of the house. And they are to uh, tell the master of the house, the teacher says, 
where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And after they say that, they're going to be taken to a large upper room that has everything that they need to prepare the Passover. And then verse 16 tells us that they went into the city, and lo and behold, it should be no surprise, they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Everything happened just as Jesus told them it would. When I read that sentence, I don't know about you, and I know what I'm getting ready to say is kind of subjective, I think that there's some power to it. They found it just as he had said. I think that there's some, some power there to that, and I don't think that Mark wrote it that way on an accident. So do you see now, even in this brief and simple narrative, that Jesus is exercising complete authority in this situation? Right? Like, there is no guessing on his part. He doesn't say, well, when you get there, there should be a guy meeting you, like how we would do. Right? When you get into town, there should be a guy. With, if, right, if we had orchestrated this ahead of time, there's none of that. There is a sense of authority and certainty and power and calm control. Consider the wills of this passage. Verse 13, a man will meet you. Not should, not might, will meet you. Verse 15, he will show you a large upper room. He's not guessing. There's no questions as to what will come to pass. Jesus is telling them, here's how it's going to be. And consider how Jesus, this made me giggle, how he wants them to, to address the master of the house in verse 14. The disciples are to say that Jesus says, where's my guest room? Right? It's, he's borrowing it for sure. But there is a sense of ownership of Christ. That's my guest room. Right? It's a guest room, but it is mine right now. Today it is mine. And he says the master of the house will give it to them. And then verse 16 just ties it together. And the disciples found it just as he had told them. Every detail, just as Jesus had said. Our Lord orchestrated this whole event. He chose and ruled over where they would celebrate the Passover. And I believe that this is an example of Christ's divine foreknowledge of future events. There's no guesswork. guesswork. He knew what would take place. And I also believe that this is a miraculous work of Christ. That this is a sovereign work of the Son of God. And I say that because the text does not mention at all that Jesus made arrangements beforehand with the master of the house. He doesn't say anything like that. Just like in chapter 11, whenever he sent the disciples into the city to get the donkey for him. Some people say that was a prearranged thing. There's nothing in the text that would hint at that. He just tells them, go, here's what you'll see, tell them that the Lord needs it. I believe that this is a, this is a sovereign work of Christ. It just says that this is what would happen. As God, Jesus was exercising divine authority over this situation. And he was moving hearts and wills to do his will. Uh, to speak theologically, he was governing the free actions of men so that his will came to pass and he could eat the Passover in private with his disciples. Brothers and sisters, our Lord, in these verses, he is controlling his betrayal, where it would take place and when it would happen. And it would not happen a moment before he consented to it. And it would not take place anywhere other than where he desired it to take place. I believe it's the Gospel of John we read. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. He's, he's wanted, he's looked forward to eating this Passover with his disciples. He has desired, rather, he desired to spend an evening alone with them so that he could teach them and pray for them before his death, and he did not want to be interrupted. And so he governed this situation to his holy ends. 
Now, as I said earlier, some say that this was an arrangement that Jesus probably made with the master of the house beforehand. And I'll admit, it is a possibility, technically, even though the text doesn't hint at it, in my opinion. But either way, the point would still stand. Jesus is in control of this. Whether it's by divine means or human preparation, Jesus was exercising control of this. Let me be even more explicit about what I'm getting at. Um, if you haven't caught it, because I, I, I'm afraid maybe, maybe not. Right? Okay, Jesus controlled the, the, the stuff. Right? Jesus was preventing Judas from betraying him prematurely. That's what's going on here, I think. Jesus is preventing Judas from betraying him prematurely. None of the 12 knew where they were to celebrate the Passover, did they? And then does Jesus tell them? No, he doesn't even tell Peter and John. He says, go into the city. Here's what you're going to see. The, the, the guy with the water jar will take you where you need to go. He doesn't even tell them the address, right? He doesn't. He just says, go into the city. This is what you'll see. Follow that guy. And then everything just happened as he said that it would. And then later, verse 17, he came with his disciples to the room. Jesus would have privacy with his disciples before he was crucified. And he would not be handed over to his death until he was ready to go. What do you think Judas would have done? Hey, where are we supposed to go? Oh, we're supposed to go on this street, this house on that street. You think Judas wouldn't have slipped away and told the Pharisees where he'd be? Absolutely he would have. That would have been the opportune time. It was private. And he's seeking an opportune time to betray him privately is what Luke 22 tells us. Jesus would not be interrupted, so he ensured it. He needed a place to have the Passover, so he got it. He wanted private time with his disciples, so he got it. He didn't want to be interrupted as he prayed, taught, and instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, so he wasn't. Jesus was in control of everything. He got what he wanted the whole way through. I want to say this again. Our Lord would not be taken before his time. Consider this. Judas would not have the opportunity to betray him before he said go. After all, is that not what he says in John 13, 27? What you're going to do, go do it quickly. He says, get out of here. Judas was not able to go until he said go. And we see this as we meditate on the details of verses 12 through 16. The sovereign son of God was controlling everything surrounding the night of his betrayal. And everything that would happen to him would happen according to his time and will. And now we move on to the second half of our text, verses 17 through 21. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus and the disciples came to the house that evening. And they began to celebrate the Passover. And there they ate symbolic food. There are bitter herbs at Passover that represent the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. They would have eaten unleavened bread that represented the haste with which the exodus happened. And they would have eaten roasted lamb to remind them of the blood of the lamb that covered the doorposts. And they would have had shared cups of wine, cups of joy at what God has done. There were prayers and ceremonial recitations of what the feast was about and singing psalms to God. Jesus, no doubt, led this Passover celebration. It was a great time of worship and praise to God for his work of redeeming the Israelites out of Egypt. And then in the middle of this praise and celebration, we read verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus just dropped a bomb on the disciples. He says, one of you will betray me. 
Can you imagine how devastating that that would have been to hear? Especially in the middle of such a holy and joyful time of worship. Like you can almost hear the record scratch. One of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Now this, we we say, well, of course one of them would betray him. It's because we know the story. The disciples were shocked. This is the first time that they had ever explicitly heard of a betrayer. Ever. Ever. Jesus had said many times that he would die at the hands of chief priests and scribes. He had said that he would be delivered over to them in some sense. Uh, He had said that he would die in Jerusalem. He had said that his time was near at hand, but he had never until this moment mentioned that there was a betrayer among the twelve. Never. This was news to them. The twelve minus Judas had no idea what was going to happen. Judas, hear me, Judas isn't, he's evil, but he wasn't stupid. Judas certainly didn't announce this to anyone. He had agreed to betray Jesus in a private meeting, not in public. His actions, as far as he knew, were a secret between him and the chief priests and Pharisees. He didn't tell anyone, but Jesus knew. Have you ever thought about that? How did Jesus know? Judas didn't tell him. The chief priests and scribes, I'm sure, didn't say, hey, Jesus, we're going to come and try to arrest you soon. Judas didn't tell anyone, but Jesus knew. In verse 20, Jesus says it again. It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Jesus knew. And listen, it wasn't even vague knowledge. He didn't just know it's one of the twelve. That's all that he tells the twelve. It's one of the twelve. But he knew it was Judas. In John 6.64, we read, For Jesus knew who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then again in John 6, 70 and 71, we read, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the, Simon, or the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew who it was. The eleven did not know, but Jesus knew. And the eleven became sorrowful, wondering if, somehow they would be the one to betray the Lord that they so dearly love. In verse 19, they says, They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Imagine the, the, the soul-searching that went on that moment. They know that whatever Jesus says is true. They've learned that over three years. He says, One of you will betray me, and all of them. Is it I? And you have to commend them. They understood the depravity of man. None of them said, No way is it going to be me. They all said, no, it's all possible that it could be one of us. We just don't know who. You got to commend them for that. But consider just for a moment, even Judas, that liar, has the goal to look Jesus in the face and say, is it I? The 11 did not know, but Jesus knew exactly which one of them would betray him. And Jesus knew that it was going to happen that night. As I mentioned earlier, John 13, 27, Jesus looks at Judas and says, what you are going to do, do quickly. What does that mean? I know you plan on doing it tonight. So go and do it. See here again how Jesus controlled this entire situation. You read this, and it's not funny, but like you, you, you laugh at the irony, I think. Judas thought he was slick. 
He thought nobody knew but him. The 11 had no idea what was going to happen that evening, but Jesus did. Jesus had divine knowledge. He knew what Judas was going to do. And yet, imagine, just, Jesus knew, and he still allowed Judas to be there, didn't he? He could have kept Judas away. He, he could have kept him from, from knowing any of the plans that they had for that evening. Right? How do you think Judas knew to find him in Gethsemane? One, he had been with Jesus a lot, but I, I, wouldn't, I, I would imagine that they all knew well, after we eat the Passover, we're going to go there. Jesus could have kept him from knowing their plans for the evening, but he didn't. He knew it was going to happen, and he let Judas be present anyway. And not only did Jesus know, but he allowed Judas to go through with his act of betrayal. I'm stealing this from a pastor named R. Kent Hughes. I had never considered this, but I thought this was worth mentioning. He let Judas go through with the act of betrayal. Now, our text does not mention the betrayal. That's a little bit further ahead in Mark's gospel. Uh, so what do I mean that Jesus allowed Judas to betray him in this text? Here's, here's what I'm talking about, uh, and I'll answer it with a question. What do you think Peter or the other disciples would have done if Jesus would have looked them in the face and said, it's Judas? What do you think would have happened? Remember what happened to the high priest's servant, Malchus? Peter cut his ear off because he was trying to arrest Jesus. There are swords present on the disciples. What do you think Peter would have done? If he would have said, it's Judas. What do you think all of the 11 would have done? Who sincerely loved the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think would have happened? They would have probably killed him. Or they would have at least tied him up. I think they would have killed him. But Jesus doesn't do that. He allows Judas's identity as the betrayer to remain hidden. Why? So that Judas could betray him. And he knew what the result of all of this would be. It would be his cross. He knew that the following day he would die horribly. And he let it happen. In control of all things, he let it happen to himself. And Jesus knew that what was to happen to him was the plan and will of God. In verse 21, he says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The Son of Man goes as it is written. All that would happen to Jesus that night and the next day was foretold in the Scriptures. Let me give you some of the Old Testament's greatest hits on this. Jesus would be the total fulfillment of what David wrote in Psalm 41, verse 9. David there wrote, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He would be betrayed. King David here was referring to Ahithophel, who betrayed him. But we know that David is a foreshadowing of Christ. This finds its fullest fulfillment in Judas, the one who literally ate bread with Jesus and then went and lifted his heel. That is, lift his heel to strike me, betray me. Jesus would be the fulfillment of Psalm 22. He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, 1. He would be mocked. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Tell me if this is not directly quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. 
Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And he would be pierced by the wicked. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Jesus would be the fulfillment of the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He would be, Isaiah 53, 4, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted for the sins of his people. He would be tried and remain silent. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53.8, he would be cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of God's people. And yet in all of this, Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus would be the promised one of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent crusher, the seed of the woman, the promised redeemer, would be struck by the serpent and die. What was to befall Christ was foretold in Scripture. It was written of him. I have certainly not gotten into all of the Scriptures that we could look at that foretold this. It's all over the Old Testament. More than that, it was foretold in the sacrificial system. What was going to happen to Jesus? In, in pictures, that, that blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. The Messiah was preached in the sacrificial system. As I mentioned earlier, it was foretold in the celebration of the Passover that something must die as a substitute for sinners and that the blood of a lamb is given for the life of the people of God. The cross work of Christ was written of him before he ever came into the world. It was written that the Messiah would offer himself on behalf of God's elect and suffer, shed his blood, and die in their place for their transgressions. God had foretold this, that the Messiah would be betrayed, handed over to death, and slain for the sins of his people. And all of this was so that he would crush the head of the serpent, Satan, make atonement for his people, and rescue them from their sin and eternal death. It was all written of him. Written of him in the scriptures. And it was written in the eternal decree of God. How do you think the scriptures got there? God ordained this. God ordained all of this. This was the plan and will of Almighty God to bring about the redemption of his people for his glory. And hear me. That means that this was Jesus' plan. This was Jesus' plan. The death of Christ was the plan of God. Jesus is what? God. And there is only one will in God. Listen, there are three divine persons in the Holy Trinity, but there is only one will and one plan because there is only one God. Brothers and sisters, this was all Jesus' plan. It was His will. 
his betrayal and cross were absolutely his plan. I say that, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from our confession now in chapter 7. His work of redemption is founded upon an eternal covenant within God. An eternal covenant within the Godhead. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says, with regard to the eternal life that we have in Christ, God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Who did he promise before the ages began? There was only one person for him to promise to himself. God promised Christ before the ages began. This all means that God, follow this is super important, God in himself before the world began in eternity past made a covenant. The Father pledged a people to the Son. And the Son agreed to come to earth and work the redemption of that people. And the Spirit agreed to regenerate and apply the work of the Son to the people that the Father had given to the Son. This is what we call in theology the covenant of redemption. And no, you won't read the words covenant of redemption in Scripture. And that's okay. Because you find the concept in Titus 1-2 and 2 Timothy 1-9. God did this in eternity past. He covenanted within himself. This eternal covenant God made within himself about the redemption of the elect. Brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus came. What, you think God just cooked up the idea after the fall? Why do you think the fall happened? This is all God's plan. This is why Jesus came. Jesus is not plan B because Adam screwed up. Jesus is plan A because this is the eternal covenant within God to redeem a people for himself. And that means then that Jesus allowed this all to happen to himself because it was his will. It was written and planned by God, which means it was written and planned by Christ himself. Hear me, our Lord was not an unwitting or unwilling victim of circumstance. He went to the cross with full knowledge and full consent. There was no way that this could have happened without his permission and plan. He didn't just know what was going to happen. He was in control of it. As R. Kent Hughes said in his commentary, Jesus is the only man who has ever been captain of his own soul. Amen. He chose the plan. He chose the day. He chose the place. He chose the betrayer. He chose the time. He chose the cross. And why did he do this? Because it was his will to die for sinners. Because it was his will to redeem his people by his blood. In short, we can say this. Why did he do this? He did it because he wanted to do it. Mystery of mysteries and glory of glories. Why he would ever want to die for us, I will never fully understand. Be honest with yourself. Look yourself in the mirror and say, why would he die for me? If you can't say that, I doubt you're a Christian. Why would he want to die for us? 
I will never fully understand. The only answer that I can give is this. He must love us. Why does he love us? I'm sure I don't know. Because we're not lovable. Forget all those stupid t-shirts you see walking around. You are full of goodness. No, you're not. You're full of awfulness. Why would he love you? I don't know, but this I do know. He does love you. I don't know why he loves me, but that I know. He does love us. And the sovereign Christ was at work in all of this. James R. Edwards wrote in his commentary, I like this, Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. There is no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility on his part. Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout the gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. Judas and others may act against him, but they do not act upon him. Amen. Brothers and sisters, our Lord was in control and he did this willingly. And we come now to the end of verse 21. And it is a hard and unhappy portion of Scripture. We come now to Jesus' declaration about the fate of Judas. This could be a sermon on its own, but I, I didn't think that we need that. Jesus pronounces woe against him. Some people think that means it's a pity. No, it's not. It's a curse in the Bible. A woe is a curse. Jesus says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas' eternal destiny is hell. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, the Son of Man goes as it, as it is written of him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. Judas will receive the most severe penalty for his treachery, and that is damnation. He will be eternally and consciously tormented in hell. Hear this and fear. The damned would be better off to have not been born, says the Lord. But the punishment of Judas will be even more severe than that of other unbelievers. As I read last week to you, Hebrews 10.29 says, How much worse punishment do you think? So how much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. This would apply to Judas and all apostates. How much worse? The answer is much worse. Much worse. Those who falsely profess Christ, who claim to love him but later betray him, will receive a worse punishment from God than others. It would have been much better for Judas to have never been born than for him to betray Christ. Now let me address something here, and it's a difficult thing, but verse 21 clearly states it. What was going to happen to Jesus, including his betrayal, was written of him and decreed by God. Yet, at the same time, Judas would be held responsible for his sin and would be damned for it. Judas acted according to God's eternal plan, and Judas was going to go to hell for it. Judas was still responsible for his own sin. Brothers and sisters, we confess, I'll give you books, and all the books say this toward the end, we confess that there is a holy mystery here. And if you're not comfortable with mystery, then this is not the religion for you. There is a holy mystery here. 
the scriptures teach us here and in many other places that even sin is part of the decree of God. And man is still responsible and willful when he commits sin. We call this divine concurrence. That God predestines all things that come to pass for his own holy and good purposes, including sin. And at the same time, men commit predestined sin of their own will for their own wicked reasons, really want to commit those sins and are really responsible for them. Though this was the decreed will of God, Judas was not trying to do the will of God. Let me say that again. Though this was the the decreed will of God that Judas would betray Jesus, Judas was not doing this out of some kind of act of piety to try to do the will of God. Judas hated Jesus and loved money. That was his motive. But God was at work in this predestined event. And he was working to bring about the redemption of his people. Scripture teaches that God is sovereign over all And that man is also responsible for his sins. And I'll just put this to you. The scriptures never attempt to reconcile those two truths. It just says them. And I feel like the Lord's saying, deal with it. They're both true. They're just both true. So I'm going to get real Martin Luther on you. At one point when trying to reconcile one of these texts, he said, I have no desire to try to reconcile these texts. God says both, so I believe both. That's a hard paraphrase, by the way, in his bondage of the will. That's basically what he says. God says both, so both are true. And we, listen, we do not live by being able to reason our way to, through things all the way to the end. We are Christians. That means we, re, we live by revealed truth. If God says it, even if I might not be able to fathom it or get my mind around it, it doesn't matter. I say God said it, and that's just how it is. But this is a truth, again, we can't fully wrap our minds around, but it is shouted on nearly every page of Scripture. If this is new to you or you have a problem with this, let me me tell you some texts you should write down real quick. Genesis chapter 50, verses 18 through 21. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Check those out later and talk with me. God has spoken, and so we confess what he has said. But let me say this. To everyone. See here in verse 21 the responsibility that each person has to come to Christ. You must. You must. You must repent and believe upon him. You must. Why? Because God holds every man responsible for his life. Predestination notwithstanding, God holds everyone accountable for what they do. I, had, I spoke to this one uh, a liberal heretic in town, and he knew that I was a Calvinist, and he said, well, if I'm just predestined to be a heretic and go to hell, then I guess that's just, it doesn't matter what I do. And I, this text would look him in the face and says, you will have no excuse in the judgment. You will have no excuse in the judgment. No one will. And this highlights to us the personal responsibility that every single human being has to be- repent and believe upon Christ, because there will be no excuses in the judgment. Because there is no excuse for Judas, even though it was predestined. And catch this from verse 21. Oddly, this should encourage you. Even sin is ordained and overruled by God for his own good and holy purposes. Even sin. If God uses sin for his own purposes, surely he uses everything else, doesn't he? Everything. 
all things, whatever they are, are ultimately part of God's plan to glorify himself and do good for his people. And Judas's sin is one example. His sin, contrary to his intentions, was ordained by God to set in motion the death of Christ that brought redemption to the world. Through sin and darkness came the light of the gospel bursting forth from the tomb on the third day. Praise God for his sovereignty. Because out of darkness, God brings light. Let me come back to an earlier thought before we move to application. I think it's one of the main points of the passage. Jesus controlled everything. It was his will and his plan. It was the purpose for which he came into the world. As Paul says to Timothy in one of my favorite verses, 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. <laughs> Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And this was accomplished by his cross. This is why he came. Brothers and sisters, I say to you again, the death of Christ was neither an accident nor a tragedy. It was God at work reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. It was the Son of God working salvation for all who would ever believe upon him throughout all the ages. So brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to take from all of this. Two things. First, see the love of Christ for his people. If nothing else this morning, see the love of Christ and be comforted by this. It was his will to die for you. What a thought that that is. He loves you. He loves you. Don't, please, I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. Don't get so caught up in theological propositions and stuff that this religion just becomes a cold, sterile textbook type thing. He loves you. That should make you glad. Should make you glad. Charles Spurgeon once said, my religion can be summed up in four words. Jesus died for me. He loves us. He loves us. And you need to know that. Let me give you some real life application to this. I want to encourage you this morning. It doesn't matter how you feel right now. It doesn't matter what difficulties you're facing. It doesn't matter what has happened to you and how down that you've been about it because nothing changes that one fact. Jesus loves you. And in that we rejoice no matter what else is going on. We are loved by Almighty God. That is the best news you have ever heard that makes all other bad news so small in comparison. And if it doesn't, it's because you don't understand the magnitude of that sentence. Almighty God loves you. Are you sick? Jesus loves you. Do you have money problems? He loves you. Are you mourning? He loves you. Are there problems in your family? He loves you. Are you lonely? He loves you. Are you stressed out? He loves you. Are you in the midst of trials that you can't see your way out of? He loves you. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Look to the cross and see the proof. Look to how he controlled everything leading to his death and see the proof. Look how he went forward willingly and see the proof. Behold his love in his crucifixion. With the eye of faith, behold the crucified, mangled body of the Son of God and see that he loves you. Because there's no other explanation for why he did it. And there's nothing that can change it. 
Nothing can take it from you. Nothing can take it from you. Jesus loves you and gave himself up for you. That is your joy that nothing and no one can take from you. Now hear me, I'm not trying to slap a bumper sticker phrase on the back of your car. I'm not saying that your problems aren't real and that they don't really hurt because they do. And I hurt with you and I have my own problems. We all have hardships, but nothing can assail this one glorious truth revealed to us in the text today. And it is this, Jesus loves you. Take that with you. And when the difficulties of life attempt to crush you and rob you of all joy, answer back with the full assurance of faith and say, Jesus loves me and nothing can change that. He loves you. And second, I want you to see the sovereign God at work through darkness. We see that with Judas. The sovereign God at work even through darkness and sin. Brothers and sisters, truly all things are for God's glory and the good of his people. Truly. So hold that. And remember it as you go through life. All things, even bad things, even sinful things, are all part of the overarching plan of God to do you good in the end. All of the difficulties we endure are part of the plan. Hear me. When I say all of them, I don't mean most of them. I mean all of them. Let me me read you a text. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's all for him and his glory. And what is his glory? To do us good. That's why Romans 8.28 says, For we know that those who love God, all things are are worked together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things that happen to you in your life, I don't care how hard they are, how sad they are, how bad they are, all of it is working for your good and the glory of God and our almighty Lord knows what he is doing. Remember that as you consider Judas. And I'll say this again, I've said this before, we don't know how, but we know for sure. Well, how's God going to use my best friend betraying me to glorify himself and do me good? I don't know, but I know he will. How is God going to use uh, my, my own mother telling me that she hates me? I don't know, but I know he will. I don't know how, but I do know for sure. And so do you, because God has said it. And in the sovereign God, we place our trust. Hear me, fate is not the master of our lives. God is. God is. And we know that we're safe with him. May the Lord teach us to trust him and rest in his love for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that is our glory because it shows us Christ. We glory in it. We rejoice in your word. We see your great love for us. We see your plan. We see that you're sovereign. We see that you do us good always. Lord, I pray that you would encourage every heart in this room with the truth that Jesus Christ loves those who trust him. If there's anyone among us who's not a believer, I pray that you would work faith in them and bring them to Christ, the Christ who loved and died for sinners. And God, knowing your love for us, help us to love you more. We thank you for Christ. Amen.